when you when we've seen wasting in the past, it's been a single species exhibiting it. In this case, not only was it multiple species, it was as far as we know, to some extent, every single sea star species that we have in this region of the ocean. And that's dozens and dozens of species. And so that is, for both of those reasons, this is something dramatically worse, I guess you would say, than anything that we had seen before. Welcome to Animalia, a podcast all about making it easy and inclusive to learn about this big, beautiful planet, the life we share it with, and how to protect it. If you grew up in a coastal city or spent any time summers at the ocean or down at the shore, as we used to say in the Northeast, you probably remember stumbling into a starfish or a dead starfish if you found it washed up on the shore. Only starfish are not actually fish at all. They have no gills, no scales, no fins, but they do have feet. Thousands of tiny tube feet they use to move along the ocean floor. Well, that's only the beginning. From their ability to regenerate their limbs, to being able to reproduce sexually or asexually, to the fact that when eating, their stomach actually emerges from its mouth to swallow up snails, mussels, and sea urchins, sea stars feel like they belong in a galaxy far, far away rather than our own planet. But they very much do belong on this planet, and they serve a critical role to the survival of some of our most important marine ecosystems, such as kelp forests, which is why when sea stars began dying off in massive, unprecedented numbers in 2013, marine biologists everywhere hit the panic button, and rightfully so. Since the 2013 epidemic from what is known as sea star wasting disease, kelp forests up and down the coast of the western U.S. and Canada are suffering. And that's a big problem because those kelp forests provide homes for a lot of the fish we eat, the oxygen we breathe, and they sequester a lot of the carbon we emit, which is why scientists are scrambling to find ways to restore sea stars. There are nearly 2,000 species of sea stars across the planet, and many are now critically endangered and nearing extinction. Today on Animalia, we sit down with Jason Hoden, a scientist at the University of Washington who is working on breeding sea stars in captivity so they are released back into the wild. Only... Captive breeding has never really been done before for sea star species, making the work James and his team are doing all the more difficult. There is no playbook to operate from. It's a system of trial and error while racing against the clock to ensure sea stars and the ecosystems that depend on them can survive. That's coming up right after the break. Join us on Saturday, October 16th for a very special live online retirement party for Magawa, the hero rat from Tanzania. That's right, a retirement party for a rat. But not just any rat, a rat who has cleared over 144,000 square meters of landmines for people across Africa. Join us alongside the team at Apopo to learn more about how they are training rats to detect landmines, tuberculosis, and much more. This event will forever change your perspective on these hyper-intelligent rodents. And of course, you'll get to meet Magawa himself. Tickets are just $5 and all proceeds go straight to Opopo, the nonprofit behind this amazing work. You can find the link on our Instagram, our website, or in the podcast notes from this episode. Now, back to Sea Stars. I'm a research scientist at the University of Washington, and I 
think of myself as a larval biologist. And I guess the topic of my research in general has to do with metamorphosis. That's the sort of concept that has fascinated me ever since graduate school and before. And so I study the metamorphic process in the ocean, which generally involves a larva microscopic that feeds on phytoplankton and it's a planktonic organism. And then it goes a traumatic metamorphosis in the case of sea urchins and sea stars, which are my favorite groups to study. Really, really dramatic in the sense that the larva and juvenile look nothing like each other. If you didn't see the process happen, you would never believe that you were looking at an earlier life stage of the same organism. And uh, they undergo this incredible transformation at the same time that they also go a quite dramatic shift in their habitat from something that swims and feed on, feeds on plankton to something that lives on the seafloor. And so that's, that's what I do for a living and what interests me. And it kind of relates to a lot of my work and the way that it fits into the project related to sea stars that, that is, a, is a really major focus of our lab at the moment is that the Nature Conservancy contacted me and asked me if I would be interested in trying to raise sea stars in the lab this endangered sea star species, the sunflower star. And the challenges involved in doing so are a lot of the same kinds of challenges that we've worked on in our own research, you know, looking at how to grow up these planktonic larvae through their metamorphic stages into early juveniles and then kind of carrying on from there. So, so that's why they contacted me and, you know, I was intrigued. And I was also very concerned about the sunflower star and actually had been kind of thinking, you know, it'd be nice to try to raise them and see, you know, just to see what happens. And, and so that was kind of the genesis of the project, I guess. Those of us who are not as familiar with the kind of gestation metamorphic, metamorphic process of sea star and sea urchin, for example, can we think of it similar caterpillar to butterflies? Are there yeah. So by the way, you know, you are not alone in being those of you who are not familiar with that process. In <laughs> fact, most scientists are not familiar with that process. It's, it blew my mind when I saw it the first time when I was a graduate student up here at Friday Harbor Labs. But, but yeah, I mean, it's akin to, I mean, in people, I mean, I think it's, I, I don't, I don't want to like belittle. I, I, I did my, metam, my, my, my PhD, I did my PhD on insect metamorphosis. And so, so I am quite enamored of that process and it's where I started, you know? So I think that's totally appropriate as sort of a starting point to think about it, but it's, it's way more dramatic than that. Because okay. if you think about it, like, and obviously we'd never do this because it would be cruel, but if you think about it in your mind's eye and you take a butterfly and remove its wings, you're pretty much left with a caterpillar, a big fat caterpillar. And so what that's telling you is that the basic body organization in insects doesn't really change between the caterpillar and the adult form. They get elaborations and pretty dramatic elaborations. I mean, it's pretty a big deal to be able to fly when before all you could do is crawl. But, but, uh, but what I want to impress upon the, you know, most of the people out there who would be listening, who have never seen this process in the ocean before is that this larva of a sea star, like literally looks nothing like the adult at all. And in fact, the entire body organization is different. So we're all familiar with sea stars as being kind of these odd radial things that are generally in multiples of five, right? And so they have what we call a pentaradial body array or a five-fold circular symmetry. And the larvae aren't like that at all. They're like us. They have bilateral symmetry. You can draw a line down the middle. 
just like you can draw the line down, line down the middle of yourself. And for the most part, we're the same on our left and right sides. And the same is true of these, of these larvae. There are so many interesting qualities about sea stars. We set up a few in the intro, but before Jason reveals his, let me share you mine. Sea stars don't have a brain, nor do they have blood, but they do have eyes. How wild is that? There is an eye at the tip of each sea star arm. So a sea star with five arms has five eyes, and one with 40 arms has 40 eyes. Scientific understanding of sea star eyes is still primitive. For example, we don't know yet if sea stars use vision in pursuit of prey. Their eyes are simple in nature. A sea star eye renders an image of approximately 200 pixels, compared to nearly 600 humans, compared that to 3,000 in eagles. But it seems decade by decade, we learn more about just how complex sea stars are. So the, the, the group that sea stars belong to, scientists know them as the echinoderms, which means spiny-skinned animals. And so uh, they all have some degree of sort of spines on their surface. And sea urchins are the most famous in that way. But uh, sea stars also, if you look carefully, have got modified spines on their surface and they've got hard body parts. Most of them are quite armored. The sunflower star that I study is kind of uniquely not very armored, but, but most other sea stars are. And maybe the most famous thing about sea stars, which is also true of the broader group, but, but most dramatically so in, in, in the sea stars, is that is the regeneration ability is the fact that if they lose parts of their body, they can grow it back. And, and correlated with that you know, is something that maybe isn't so well recognized, but that regeneration ability essentially means that they are eternally renewable. Literally, there isn't any sign in sea stars or in their relatives that they ever really age. So I think it's not, not inappropriate. And, you know, an old, an old mentor referred to them to me once as being immortal. And I think that that's, you know, valid. I mean, they could be taken out by a disease or they could be eaten by something, obviously, but they never age in any way that we sort of understand aging. And, and that's probably connected to this amazing regenerative ability. And other fun things about sea stars in general is that when they, even though they have what people might call legs, we call them arms, the four, the five in most species, the five arms of a sea star, that's not how they walk. They don't walk on their arms. They walk on mil- thousands and thousands of individual little tube feet, these little flexible structures that are underneath the body. And, and, and they sort of glide across the surface because there's so many different individual feet making the move. So they sort of look like a hovercraft from above when you watch them move. And, and then finally that structure itself, the tube feet, they're not just for walking. It's a sensory structure. They breathe with them. So they have these amazing multifunctional parts of their body and super fascinating organisms. Yeah. There's, there's so many creatures in, in the ocean. Octopus come to mind too, that are just mm. almost seem extraterrestrial. Yeah. So Let's kind of go back to 2013 mm. when the kind of latest epidemic of sea star wasting disease, from what, from what I understand, sea star wasting disease has happened before. And it's almost a weird terminology because itself isn't like the disease. Like they're like, it's not, from my understanding, it's not a specific pathogen that makes sea star wasting disease as, a, as we might think of a disease as like COVID, right? As a very specific coronavirus pathogen. Sea star wasting disease, from my understanding, is used similarly to, let's say, in the beekeeping world, they might call a colony collapse disorder, right? But there are many things that could lead to that. But you know, is that a fair analogy in terms of? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right, and there's been some, uh, there's been a lot of discussion going on 
among people who work on sea stars and on diseases like, uh, you know, what to call this, you know, and, and, and for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. But let me, let me sort of draw a few distinctions with what you just said, or maybe some clarifications a little yeah, bit. Of course. First of all, the, the phenomenon of wasting, which if, you know, your listeners have never seen it, it's quite horrible. You know, in, in the most extreme cases, these poor sea stars just basically collapse into a pile of goo and their whole bodies fall apart. The, this has been observed before in sea stars for, you know, it's been documented for, you know, in the literature for more than a hundred years. So it's not new in that sense, but what happened in 2013 was quite distinct in two really major ways. One is that instead of most of the times in the past when it's been sort of localized to a given region, this affected stars along a really huge stretch of coastline. As far as we know, from Alaska all the way down to Northern Mexico. And so, well, I mean, and when I say as far as we know, I mean, that's, that definitely, it definitely <laughs> affected them along that uh, range, if not farther. And across uh, many so, different CSAR species too, right? And that's the second thing that's really unusual. Normally, when, you, when we've seen wasting in the past, it's been a single species exhibiting it. In this case, not only was it multiple species, it was as far as we know, to some extent, every single sea star species that we have in this region of the ocean. And that's dozens and dozens of species. And so that is, for both of those reasons, this is something dramatically worse, I guess you would say, than anything that we had seen before. Now, one final point though, on the point of this disease, I do agree with you that, that the symptoms of this disorder or syndrome or disease or whatever you want to call it, the symptoms of it do look pretty similar on the surface between what might have happened in the past and what happened now. But let me, let me go back to your COVID analogy. COVID symptoms also are quite overlapping with a lot of other flu-like diseases. So just looking at the symptoms is not enough for you to say, oh, these two things look pretty similar. So there isn't any specific cause. It's just some sort of syndrome. And then I'll just say one final point, which is that there you're right that as of right now, there is no identified pathogen, but I, for one, have not like concluded that therefore there is no pathogen or pathogens responsible for it. I think it's still quite possible that the, that the pathogens or pathogen hasn't been identified yet. And, yeah, it uh, seems pretty yeah. op still open in the scientific community <clears throat> I think, over I what, think that's what fair led, to, say. Like, led you know, to this. And, uh, and that, and that, uh, that's shall we say, a lack of understanding that we have of the causes of sea star wasting are, is frustrating to people like me, you know, working in the field. I mean, we would love to know more about why our sea stars around here are disappearing, you know, as we're working to try to see what we can do to help them recover. There are a few different theories out there on what drove this unprecedented blow of sea star wasting disease. The popular thought early on was this was due to a pathogen. And there's still a lot of evidence that points to this as the culprit. Scientists have tried to understand how this pathogen would have such a devastating effect on all sea star species, but none on any related species, such as sea urchins or sand dollars. But we know pathogens can be very species-specific. Another popular theory points to climate-induced changes to the ocean, particularly warming ocean waters carrying less oxygen and more toxic bacteria due to coastal and river runoffs and plastic pollution. An oxygen-depleted sea star would be using its oxygen and energy to fight off bacteria in the water and thus have difficulty breathing. 
leading to lesions on the arms and the onset of wasting disease. Perhaps the most likely scenario may be accepting that these things are not at all mutually exclusive. That due to stress caused by warming waters, sea stars are more susceptible to pathogens and unable to fight them off as easily, much like our own bodies when we are in a stress state. Help us understand the sort of magnitude of the 2013 wasting disease in terms of from that Alaska to Northern Mexico coast, just how many, you know, whether it's on, I know we don't know the exact number I know, but by a percentage or just order of magnitude, help us understand the scale yeah. of how yeah. this, this, how devastating this was. Yeah. So, so it's, it was quite unbelievable, honestly. So for the, and I mean, and, and I should point out, and this is actually, you know, an important sort of finding and it's, you know, good in a sense that it wasn't like all sea stars were wiped out. There were some species that showed some signs of wasting, but the populations don't seem to have been badly hurt in those species. And so that's good. And then there's a whole spectrum. And on the far end of the spectrum is the species that I study, the sunflower star, which was really, really severely affected. So I'll tell you about how affected that sea star species was. So they were very, very abundant, extremely common divers, beachcombers, crab fishermen, people who walk along docks and look on the pilings along the West coast would be very familiar with this star. They're very colorful. They're huge. They can be like the size of a bicycle wheel or bigger when they're fully grown adults. And so they're, they're, you know, commonly spotted. So that was the in the before times and before this epidemic of wasting disease hit in 2013, uh, you would find them quite commonly across the range from Alaska all the way down to Northern Mexico. Now, as far as I've heard, there have been no documented sightings of sunflower stars in Northern Mexico or anywhere along California's coast and in subtitled deeper water areas for several years now. So, you know, we think that they're all but extinct in that area. In Oregon, in the last couple of years, there have been a few documented sightings, but they were quite common before. So the, the data suggests that they've been knocked down to more than, you know, more than 95% loss of their, of their, you know, former numbers. So only one in 20 or fewer of those sea stars remain. And then it gets, the news gets slightly better the farther you step up the coast. So here in the uh, Salish Sea, this area that's shared between Northern Washington waters, waters off the coast of Northern Washington and Southern Canada, we have sunflower stars, but they're down to probably 10% of their former numbers. So maybe one in 10 of what we used to find. And then up in Alaska, it's, you know, maybe double that number, you know, so, and so there seems like it was, you know, that's a huge impact. That's, you know, billions of sea stars in total that we lost. And, but there is this interesting sort of, sort, sort of gradient, I guess you would say from the very far South where we lost almost all or all of our stars to the very far North where we lost a lot, but the population still look, you know, okay-ish. And, and, and then in between, on the, in the in-between areas. So, so that's the status. For the few sea stars that are out there still that we can observe, do we, do we see the wasting disease still kind of taking its ugly toll or is that? Yeah. Is that... So, so the good news is that we actually haven't seen much wasting in the last couple of years. So, so that's good. And, and the good news about our program, which I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves, but this captive rearing program here is that we haven't seen wasting in our 
sea stars that we have here for over two years. So that's great. We don't have much in terms of historical records of non-human epidemics, but from what we have gathered, the 2013 sea star wasting disease may be the worst of all time based on how many of them were lost in such a short period. The small percentage of sea stars remaining on the western U.S. coast are holding on, which is a good sign and speaks to the resiliency and adaptability of sea stars and the regenerative abilities. But even so, the cascade of damage following sea star depletion has already taken hold, particularly in the critical kelp forests that line the Pacific coast. Some of the bull kelp forests have lost over 90% of their volume since 2013. There are many factors at play here, including climate change again, but without sea stars, sea urchins in particular have flourished and are eating their way through these underwater forests at concerning rates. To help our listeners understand just how important sea stars are, let's take a kelp forest and kind of walk us through, let's say between the kelp forest ecosystem, sea stars, sea urchins, like they have a very interrelated kind of livelihood and impact on the ecosystem. So help us understand what, you know, when we lost all these sea stars on the Western coast, the impacts it had on these kelp forests, the impacts it's had on urchin populations and, and why, you know, sea stars are so pivotal to these ecosystems. Yeah. So the first thing I want to say is that the term kelp forest is really appropriate. If you ever have an opportunity to, to swim, dive, uh, snorkel through a kelp forest or see it, a video of it, you'll, you'll agree that these are these along the West coast, these giant organisms that grow incredibly fast every year and make entire forests with canopies. And, and they are incredibly crucial marine habitats. You know, they are the rainforest of the ocean in many, many ways in terms of the fact that they have incredible biodiversity, that they are really important for coastal human populations in terms of fisheries, protection from storms, and they're doing us a great service as we, you know, keep delaying doing something about climate change here on this planet. They're at least sucking some of the carbon out for us, and it would be way worse if they weren't there. So to yeah. kelp is also a, a highly nutritious and highly regenerative yeah. form of, of, of farming as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if done properly, you know, kelp can be a very sustainable fishery and farming in its own right, and it is quite nutritious and delicious. So, so yeah, that's all true. So the kelp forests that we have along the West Coast, there's a couple different main species, starting in about central California and going all the way up to Alaska, the dominant species out here is a species called bull kelp. And what we saw in the years after 2013, when the sea star wasting disease hit, and right at the same time as we got sort of unusually warm waters that you were alluding to, right around that same time, kelp started to disappear quite dramatically. And it went down itself in, Calif in some parts of California from you know, uh, healthy populations down to five to 10% of what their normal forest cover was in the past. And so, and that, that connection that you asked about with urchins and sea stars is that in a sort of a healthy kelp forest ecosystems, there are sea urchins there, sea urchins eat kelp, but the uh, urchins have predators. Historically, one of their main predators was, was sea otters. Sea otters are, are gone in a lot of the West Coast from, from, heart, from, over, from hunting, basically human hunting, and restored in a few areas, but um, still missing from a lot of the coast. And in, in many of the areas, the only other main predator of adult sea urchins 
are sunflower stars, this species that had been that we study that was really, really badly affected by wasting disease. Now, sunflower stars have a couple of different effects on sea urchins. They do eat them, but they also sort of famously uh, strike fear into not only sea urchins, but all other kinds of organisms on the seafloor when they encounter them. Sunflower stars are, you know, a lot of your listeners probably think about sea stars when they see them on the beach and they're not really doing much. Maybe they're just kind of sit sitting there. Sunflower stars, if you see them underwater, are extremely active. They, they're highly mobile and they move a lot faster than your typical sea star. And as they're sort of gliding along the seafloor, encountering other organisms on the, in their way, those organisms flee in front of them. And that includes urchins. So the impact of the loss of sea otters and the loss of, of sea stars on directly eating sea urchins and on this potential fear factor, which you know, might also influence the behavior of urchins may be associated with why we saw this explosion in the population of sea urchins in the years that followed that onset of wasting disease in this warmer water event. And so urchin populations, when they get too large, they overeat the kelp. And that's basically you know, what we've seen. And so the kelp may have been weakened by the warmer waters, the sea stars and otters are gone, urchins are going hog wild. They actually kind of, from our research, seem to like those temperatures of water that were, that were a little bit stressful to kelp. And so all of that combined may have advantaged the sea urchins to the detriment of kelp. And so now there's a missing kelp in a lot of the, in a lot of the California coast and uh, possibly elsewhere. And, and, you know, the missing sea stars. And so we're hoping that, you know, over the coming years, you know, we'll see a restoration of balance, but the situation is pretty dire at the moment. There's a, a lot of similar, interesting similarities to, uh, we, we produced a series earlier uh, this summer, not too long ago on the state of wolves in the United States, really historically the extermination going back to the mid 19th century through today. And, you know, one of the most fascinating things you talk about the fear factor and how real it is. Well, one of the most fascinating things about the recovery of Yellowstone was it's not so much the wolves came in and the biggest impact they had on ungulate populations, particularly deer and, and by, particularly deer in Yellowstone, is they intimidated the deer to moving away from the more wide open areas near the river basins towards more denser tree cover right? Because the deer naturally are now have their apex predator back in their ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And that actually allowed the vegetation on the riverbanks to get stronger. Mm. And it helped, it helped stop some of the erosion that was happening mm. of mm. those rivers mm. and strengthen the rivers. But that fear factor for the predator to prey is very real. And that's a, that's an, a documented example in Yellowstone. That's been pretty, pretty fascinating to see yeah. how wolves impacted the rivers of Yellowstone. Yeah. 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 Some um, of these, some of these uh, connections are really quite, quite dramatic. And, you know, and, you know, I certainly don't advocate us doing these experiments, like removing a species from their habitat, and then having to restore it to them, which is what we do all the time, not as an experiment, but usually either by mistake, or because we just want to hunt something, and we're not careful about it. But, uh, you know, th those moments are when we learn the most about the ecology, we learn these really you know, fascinating lessons about ecology through these kind of, you know, experiments, if you will, of, you know, removing and then, you know, adding back predators and seeing what happens basically. So how does one go about trying to rear and raise an animal in captivity with little to no documentation to work from? Think about that for a second. If you were handed a species and asked to successfully breed it in captivity with no data, no records to work from, how daunting would that be? Where would you start? 
Well, that's more or less the situation James and his colleagues have faced for the last couple of years, which makes their recent progress all the more remarkable. Why raising a sea star in captivity is so challenging in the first place? Well, I mean, as you said, it, raising sea stars in general has not been done very much at all. There are a few species that people have raised. And again, like literally only because they thought it was a cool idea to raise sea stars. I mean, or they thought it was an interesting uh, scientific uh, problem. And because they wanted to see what these little tiny life stages do. And, you know, they wanted to be able to study them, which are hard to access in the wild because they're so tiny and cryptic. So... So it was just basic motivations that in the few studies that have been done, in the species that I study here, this endangered sunflower star, it's never been tried really in any major way to grow them. And it's never been done successfully in my understanding. So, so the, the reason that I guess it's the first reason it's so challenging is that these things haven't been done so much before. So we don't have a lot of, you know, basic things to go off of, you know, the, the one species that has been successfully reared that I mentioned that I alluded to, it's, it's quite different. What it feeds on as a juvenile is pretty different than the sunflower star. So, you know, what they learned couldn't really be, be, you know, applied directly to what we were doing. And, and again, like, if you think about it, the, the, you know, again, get in your mind, this massive predatory sea star, you know, that, you know, can be three to five feet in diameter and eating large prey, okay? When they undergo that metamorphic process that we talked about earlier from a larva to a juvenile, they start off the size of a poppy seed. So they're gonna grow as a juvenile, as a little tiny sea star, starting at the size of a poppy seed and getting up to that huge adult size. Clearly what they're eating at that poppy seed size is not the same as the adults. And so basically we didn't know what they eat, what they ate, what kind of habitat they liked. We didn't, we didn't, we, people haven't really found them in the wild. And so we didn't know what kinds of uh, habitat to give them so that they would grow. And, and we didn't know what to feed them, you know, and so forth. So we didn't know how long it would take. You know, there, there were just so many questions about or how to do this and, you know, whether we could accomplish it from the beginning. And so we just had to kind of, you know, give it our best shot. And, you know, we had, we had some successes in the beginning, but a lot of, a lot of difficulties in trying to figure out how to raise them. And this was also during the early times of COVID. So, so it was challenging. What, what was the hardest point in those, those early days last year? What was the kind of the, the period in the, the kind of incubation process that like was hard to get past? Well, the earliest juvenile stages, like I said, we, we had these, we had thousands of these little tiny juveniles that we were able to, to make. So we're, we're really good at growing larvae of sea stars and sea urchins and our techniques applied really well to the sunflower star. So we were very successful getting the larvae to raise up. It took them two months to get through their larval period, but you know, we just were patient and got them through that period. And, you know, honestly, we were quite lucky to be able to, to figure out uh, good cues and uh, signals that the larvae use to transition from that larval stage down into a, to undergo their final stage of their metamorphosis down to the seafloor. So that was all pretty good. And it went, I guess, even a little bit better than we expected. And, but now we were left with thousands of these juvenile sea stars and we had no idea what to do with them. We didn't know what kind of conditions, how crowded they should or shouldn't be, whether they needed water flow or they're like static water, what the substrate should be that they should be grown on, what to feed them, you know, 
how often we would need to change their water or what we'd need to do with them. I mean, it was just thousands of questions with no real ideas about what to do. And the, to add to the challenges, we were sort of faced with these thousand babies to feed right around, let's say March, April, 2020. Mm-hmm. So right when all the people who were helping me had to go into quarantine. So I was doing this all myself for a couple of months. So that was the most challenging period and uh, keeping even a handful of them alive after all of that during the spring and summer of 2020 was uh, quite challenging. But, quickly um, became a single parent. Yeah, totally. <laughs> thousands, uh, thousands of thousands children. Of, <laughs> thousands of, yeah. And unfortunately it started as thousands and it, you know, it ended up with not thousands after a while, but, but we, we did, we did manage to get uh, a dozen sea stars through all the way to now from that time. So they've now been juvenile sea stars growing up for 18 months at this point or a little under, and they've grown from that poppy seed size to the size of my hand. And that's pretty unbelievable. I mean, that's like a huge amount of growth. It may not seem like a lot, but you know, that's, that's, you know, that's equivalent. That's, that's more than the size of you know, your baby in a year and a half growing to the size of a, of a, you know, a giant pine tree or something. And and at that hand size, I I assume they're now eating mussels, clams, that kind of, that kind of food. Yeah. So, so they, when they, you know, we, we, that's been one of the really, you know, fulfilling and fascinating things to see, which is seeing them transition into more adult-like behaviors where they can do things like eat whole clams and mussels, as you say. So we've been feeding them now, yes, baby versions of clams and mussels and oysters. And, and so that's the main thing that they eat at that larger size. At the really, really small sizes, we're still honestly trying to work out what the best food is for them. But it turns out, and this is really fascinating, is that they will eat the babies of sea urchins and sea urchin relatives like sand dollars. And so that seems to be a pretty good food for them. And that also raises a lot of really interesting questions about the ecological function of this sea star, that it may be important in controlling sea urchins, not only at those giant massive adult sizes that we're used to seeing, but at these little tiny microscopic sizes that nobody ever notices or kind of ever sees really. They're also experimenting with raising sea stars in different temperatures and marine conditions to learn just how resilient they are and how future ocean changes could impact them. So for the larvae, we were able to do that. It's a little bit more challenging for the juveniles just because of the setup that we have. We're hoping in the next year to be able to kind of expand our operation, you know, have some temperature controlled aquaria, multiple ones to be able to do tests of temperature on the juveniles. But that's a little bit challenging. And as I said, we've just been trying to figure out how to grow the juveniles at all. So that was a little, that would be a little bit, um, you know, before you're ready to do that. But the larvae, which we're, like I said, we're pretty good at raising. We came up with a designed to be able to raise the larvae at a variety of different temperatures and compare them. And we haven't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to over trumpet this since, you know, we haven't published this and and the, the data analysis isn't really done. But my impression from looking at it is that they're actually pretty robust, the larvae are, to a wide range of temperatures, which is kind of a hopeful sign. Yeah. That, uh, that they're not super temperature sensitive, at least at that life stage. But, you know, we do not know if that temperature sensitivity extends to the later stages. And I will tell you that at the very least, the adults are very, very sensitive to oxygen. They like a lot of flowing seawater. And one of the things that happens in warmer water is that it's harder to breathe. And so, so when, our, when our tank's flow stops and uh, the oxygen levels drop and probably the temperature goes up a little bit, our adult stars look really, really unhappy until we can restore the flow. So, what does an unhappy 
Seastar look like? <laughs> well, to my to my one of my research assistants who had never seen it before, it looked to her like a dead sea star, a stagnant, folded over on itself and not really moving. And mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, but we so we said like this was you know we have a great water system here at Friday Harbor Labs that's constantly flowing, but every once in a while the system gets clogged. And a couple hours of that, and yeah, the stars can look bad, but they recovered quite well. You know, that was a big event that we were really worried about, and all of our stars are still doing fine. So, one of the most alarming effects of the warming and acidifying oceans is they're holding less and less oxygen. That's a problem. For one, the oceans produce at least half of the Earth's oxygen. Half. That's 50%. I mean, if that stat alone does not make you want to never touch a single use plastic again, I don't know what will. Less oxygen in our oceans is not just bad for us. It's bad for all life. It's affecting marine life the most, given this is their only source of supply. Which is why every component part that makes marine ecosystems hum, and in particular, the most oxygen-producing of them, like kelp forest, is so important to protect. I'm sure you're like me, and prior to this discussion, you never knew just how vital sea stars are. We all owe Jason and his team a big thanks for the work they're doing here. In terms of restoration and getting stars back to these, that's that's like bull kelp forests, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Do you think it is is there's a stronger belief that growing them all the way to the adult stage in captivity is the best foot forward, or releasing them at the larva stage, getting the larva stage of captivity and releasing them? Like, what what do you think is going to be the the best best way forward? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I think that I don't think that they're mutually exclusive ideas either. I mean, like I said raising the larvae is pretty straightforward, relatively speaking. And more to the point, you can raise a lot more larvae in a small space than you can the juveniles. They need a lot more space for that many individuals. So those are arguments why releasing them as larvae might be a very good approach. You could raise them up all the way through. The larval stage of of any of these organisms is a very dangerous stage for them. There's a lot of predators of them out there. And so us raising those in captivity already, is kind of giving them a head start. It's getting them through all the way to the point where they're ready to settle down onto the seafloor. So yeah, I mean, I think you could raise, you could raise hundreds of thousands, you know, relatively easily, honestly, sea stars up to that point where they're just ready to settle down and then release them at that point and hope that they would settle sort of locally where you release them or wherever, actually, honestly. And, uh, and that may be effective. But, but yes, I also would say that those first months and years of early growth are also probably quite dangerous for the stars as well. So most of those probably wouldn't end up surviving even if they settle down into an appropriate habitat. They have a lot of predators and they're very susceptible to a wide range of things when they're at that very small vulnerable size. So raising them up from there up to maybe the size that they are now, not full grown adults. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know how you do that. Like you need a lot of space in order to be able to raise that many adults in a lot of time, but even raising them up to the, like what they are at 18 months or, you know, as they are now the size of my hand, you know, I think that that's a pretty good size. We've shown that the ones that we have, once they got up to a certain size, they've had 100% survival in our hands, whereas it was harder to keep them alive younger. So there's a certain point where maybe they've gotten over the hump and, and releasing them at that point might be effective. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, I think that you know, both approaches could be good. And I think the idea of releasing the juveniles is a real interesting one. Like I said, they're quite mobile. It's not clear that they would stay exactly where they're released, but but you, know, you might think of this as sort of like, we've got five to 10% of the kelp forest in California remaining. 
you know, maybe the sunflower stars could be sort of like guardians of those patches in a way. You know, yeah. you can release them in those very, very localized areas so that we can at least retain those because those cat patches of kelp are not, it's not just that like, you know, we're hoping to keep some around. I mean, those are the seed banks for kelp hopefully recovering back to their historical numbers all along the coast, right? So we need to protect these ones. And those ones that are still persisting might be uniquely resistant to things like warming, warming waters. So since they survived those warm water events. So, so yeah, I think that these are potentially viable approaches. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, why I was so excited to talk to you is in, 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 in many ways, the work you're doing, you know, may, the, the future of these bull kelp forests may rest on it. Right. Well, I mean, I, mean, I wouldn't say on me alone. I mean, you know, the people no, who I, I mean, there, you as in, monitoring the kelp yeah. and, and restoring kelp forests and, you know, in the, in the sort of like, you know, hard work way that, and, and using some really incredible modern techniques of being able to grow kelp up in the lab and now plant them. I mean, all these, all these strategies. There's no together. silver bullet, right? Yeah, Everyone, we need to kid it from yeah. a bunch of sides. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is, is there sure. any chance? And I realized as I'm asking this question that I'm probably asking questions you're asking yourself because you're still collecting so much data. So maybe if there's a hypothesis more than an answer to this, but in other species, for example, I've personally done a lot of work in the elephant space and, um, you know, after a certain point in captivity, elephants can't be safely reintroduced to the wild, right? It'll just be harder for them to survive without a herd, without experience living in the wild, dealing with other species, you know, going after their own food if they've been fed by hand for years. And it's roughly around must, like basically up until an elephant hits that point in, in kind of puberty, I think they, you know, the, shortly thereafter. And this is all still being proved out in the elephant space too, because it hasn't been done enough. It can be taken back to the wild, but a 40, 50 old elephant, right? It's been in captivity their whole life. It would almost be inhumane to put them back in the wild. It'd be better off putting them into a, you know, kind of non-interaction, non-riding, you know, safe sanctuary. I'm curious if we have any theories on that with sea stars too. Is there a point of kind of no return that we, that, that may exist for sea stars or would they in theory, you think be fine no matter what point they go back into the, into the wild? Yeah. I mean, these are great questions and I've been totally thinking about this exact same thing. I mean, we really, really treat our captive sea stars. Well, we feed them as much as they want to eat. Basically they're growing like crazy. They don't have to hunt for their prey. We just basically give it to them. They do cruise around their cages and pick up their prey, but, and, and shove them in their mouth like the adults do, but, but they don't have to actively go out hunting and searching for prey like an adult would. And I'm totally curious whether or not like we, us depriving them of those sort of hunting behaviors early on might translate into them being, you know, not as good at hunting in the wild. Now, now, you know, these kinds of things that you're mentioning are true of captively bred species across the board. You mentioned the example of elephants, but you know, this comes up in almost any species that you breed. And maybe it's a little less of a problem in something that's not actively sort of like trained or protected by a parent, you know? Like most of these, most of the creatures in the ocean have this totally opposite life cycle of ours. I mean, you know, we have one or, you know, if you have twins too or whatever, offspring at a time and provide months and months and months and then years after that of, of direct protection, right? Sea stars from the moment of fertilization are completely on their own in the wild and, you know, are not, are not cared for by their parent in most of the species. And so, so you know, maybe, they're, maybe they would be less likely to be, 
you know, like the elephants in that way. But, but I do worry about the, about the behaviors. And we're actually, honestly, I was just talking to the, my research assistants about this, planning some, you know, kind of when we have a little bit of time, planning a little bit of sort of arenas for them and letting them have a little bit more, you know, opportunity to be able to forage in a sense, rather than us just feeding them and to see, you know, whether they would do it effectively. We, we are also sort of, you know, planning small scale reintroduction efforts where we put them in cages out in the wild where they won't have an opportunity to forage, but at least we'll be able to find out whether or not they're robust and they can survive under natural conditions and not in the highly controlled conditions that we give them in the lab. And so, you know, we're going to start to try to check off some of those boxes that are really concerns and, and frankly are the concerns of any, you know, Department of Fish and Wildlife regulator in California who might be involved in considering whether introducing sea stars into the wild is a good idea. They're going to want to know the answer to those questions too. So as far as we can up here in our little program, you know, we'd like to help them answer those questions and see whether or not, you know, this would be a feasible uh, approach. But at some level, you know, these sea stars roam really wildly. They're really not very easy to track. And so, you know, at some point, we're probably just going to have to give it a try. Is there any way our listeners or, you know, kind of the average person can support your work and support the things you're doing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, actually, we have an online funding campaign through the University of Washington that like are gifts that are like tax deductible donations that then like 100% goes into our operation, which is really great. It's a uh, it's a campaign called Stars for the Sea, and that's on the Together UW website. So you can go to the Together UW website and search for Stars for the Sea and, uh, and find that uh, campaign if you're inclined to, to join. I mean, but of course, you know, I mean, one of the main things that, that, that I'm really happy about with you wanting to cover this story is just to get the word out about the, you know, the, the ecological challenges that we're facing, you know related in some ways and, you know, and in some ways we don't even know to climate change and other ecological problems of habitat loss and, and so forth and the importance of these habitats and why we really need to preserve them. And so, you know, just raising the awareness and sharing the information about it and, you know, doing all the things that we need to do to be able to, you know, preserve the health of our oceans, you know, everything from, you know, global efforts, you know, working on sustainable fisheries, but, you know, if you live as every as almost everybody does on some sort of waterway that eventually floods flows into the ocean, what you put on your lawn, you know, and what what goes on the streets, I mean, that all ends up in the ocean too. So everything that you know, you know, everybody has a connection to the ocean and has things that they can do to help with that. So you know, if you want to help directly, great. Help in any way you can. Raise awareness about it. It's really great. So we appreciate it. Awesome. I'll I'll put the link to the to the campaign in the podcast notes. And oh, that would be yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. I always try to remind people that you know there's still, you know, roughly ninety five percent of our oceans we haven't even explored, and we have no idea what's going on. Yeah. There's yeah. just so so much, and there's such a, you know, compared to terrestrial ecosystems, we we know so little in yeah. terms of the inner interconnectedness, and you know we're starting to peel back that onion a little bit, right? But that onion is massive, and we're still at the outer layer of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and, and honestly, I mean, like on, I mean, I can, I think of that in sort of like, you know, a very positive way. And like, that's why I'm a marine scientist because there are so many cool, interesting questions to study, you know, on the other hand, the, our lack of knowledge can also be a hindrance. Like it was for us early on, you know, with our captive marine program, it would have been great if this stuff was known two years ago. So we wouldn't have to spend the last two years finding out basic knowledge. So, so we need to explore it more 
and we need to protect the oceans. So they're there to be studied for, you know, you know, multiple generations to come and enjoy it. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's also, they're also sequestering roughly half the carbon that the earth sequesters naturally and producing half the oxygen. So thank you ocean. Yeah. Thank you ocean. We would not be alive without them. All right. Well, thanks so much for, for your time again. Thanks for the work you're doing. And yeah, we'll look forward to keep following the, following your work and following your studies. Thanks so much. And I look forward to hearing what you put together here. All right. Thanks. Take it easy. Bye. Have a good day. Thank you as always for listening. Please follow us on social media at Experience Animalia. Don't forget, we have a weekly newsletter you can subscribe to for free and get three stories in your inbox every week that will make you a more informed advocate for this world. Just go to www.joinanimalia.com newsletter. And as always, thank you for supporting Animalia and all the incredible life on this one-of-a-kind, remarkable planet we call